It turns out that bliss, a second-by-second joy plus gratitude at the gift of being alive, conscious, lies on the other side of crushing, crushing boredom. Pay close attention to the most tedious thing you can find. Tax returns, televised golf, and in waves. A boredom like you have never known will wash over you and just about kill you. Ride these out, and it's like stepping from black and white into color. Like water after days in the desert. Constant bliss in every atom. That was a passage from The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. I'm Jason Squamata. Welcome to The Pale King edition of Book Circle Online. From the library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Well, uh, here we are. I'm Jason Scamata. Uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for stepping into the circle. I am here, uh, as always, with a uh, bevy of ravishing co-hosts like... Christy Lovato. Pat Janowski. Kate Finker. And uh, today, we are discussing a complex, uh, invigorating, challenging, baffling, infuriating, rhapsodic, and, uh, and, and ultimately just deeply interesting book called The Pale King by, uh, by literary firebrand David Foster Wallace, who tragically... Uh, in the midst of working on this book, um, took his own life. And uh, as much as we like to uh, investigate texts on this show in and of themselves, as if they'd written themselves and that the author's life is uh, a kind of byproduct of their engineering, um, that's a fact that hangs over this book and I think, uh, you know, is a necessary element in, in our equation of... Uh, of determining, not determining its merit, but in, in figuring out how best to enjoy it, appreciate it, and uh, and get immersive with it, as the service would bid us to. Um, so, those are my two book bits on The Pale King, for the time being. Christy. I, you know, this book was really challenging for me. I can't say that I enjoyed it as a novel. Um, it was beautiful, and certainly the writing is amazing, and just the sentence construction in some of the was amazing and beautiful, but whether intentionally or not, his exploration of the central theme of the book of dullness and boredom, Mm. it played out in the way that his descriptions and the the vignettes. So there's not like for those of you at home and it's not, one long narrative arc, there are these vignettes that are explorations of moments in time of these characters and themes of the book. And there were times where I felt like he was intentionally dragging us along to belabor the point of the dullness that he was trying to evoke. Okay. A sort of form following function. Yeah. Well, but if you will. I, I wonder before I, I ask for your two bits, Pat, I, you know, cause I, I feel like I had a similar experience mm-hmm. as, uh, as what you experienced with this book, but what he keeps coming back to is this concept of in our like ravenously distracted civilization, um, the idea that, that boredom is like the last frontier of consciousness. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> it is. And you know, and and if there if there is a point it's that and it's all I mean all these different lives and fragments that are brought into play to illustrate this. I mean, um, you know, generally the hero's journey in conventional fiction, you know, there's this this uh this ultimate climax of crossing the abyss which is generally considered this swarm of monsters and terrors and refractions of all your worst fears and uh and like the uh the kind of IRS guru who uh who kind of converts Chris Fogler in mm-hmm. uh in that in that beautiful scene of epiphanic conversion to service in the IRS um you know like all the uh those those heroes journeys where they were figuring out what the world was made of, making the maps, fighting the monsters, accumulating the facts that our vision of the world is made of. The facts have been gathered and that heroism now is sitting at a desk 
and sorting through those facts. No, I hate that. Is it fun? <laughs> it's I just hate it. Yeah. But Pat, please. I have so many things to say about this book. Um, what I want to say first is, is I really, really am delighted in your use of the word epiphanic, if it's even a word. It is now. Um, second, um, the the previous work of David Foster Wallace's that I had attempted to read before this was Infinite Jest. Mm-hmm. And I'm ashamed to say I did not even come close to getting deeply into that book. There was no shame in the circle, but I understand your feeling. Um, Craig, continue. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate that. My humanity did not allow me, uh-huh. shall I say. Yes. And to the point where I had checked that book out of the library, which you get for three weeks or something, mm-hmm. and it became obvious to me I wasn't going to be able to finish it in three weeks. And I'm a really voracious reader. I read a lot. I read fast. It's mm-hmm. one of my like things mm-hmm. because I'm a total... Um, dork. And what's the word? Dork? Uh, dork. Uh, with dorks like that. Who needs? I, yeah. Yes. Oh. Anything else. Anything else. Yes. I love you guys. <laughs> I am a bibliophile. Yes. If uh, we are going to be speaking en French. Uh, oh, let's not. But okay. Please continue. Yes. Um, and then I, so then I bought the book. Uh-huh. And ended up because <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to, because I knew I wasn't going to Okay, meaning infinite Yes. 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 And um, still, that didn't work either. Ended uh-huh. up giving it to someone uh-huh. who had accepted the challenge of, you know, said the same thing. I'm a voracious reader. I re- I'm sure I'll be able. And I gave it to them. And I, I don't know the end of that story because I can't remember who that person was. Right. But I have never craved the return of that book. Uh-huh. So I started this book thinking, oh God. Yeah. And I was <clears throat> I was really pleasantly surprised. Uh-huh. To have the opposite experience, uh-huh. I was drawn into these people's stories. The um, oh, I have so much more to say, but anyway, it that was, and I think it was because of the simply structurally the lack of footnotes, uh-huh. um, right? Uh, because that would that that was part of what or the relative me. scarcity of footnotes. There are some. There are yeah. some, but yeah. but infinite complete is... complete lack compared to infinite yeah, jest right. and i'm not that's not to say that footnotes as a structure are invalid yeah. there was just something about that particular book of his that it it threw me yeah and but it's also um well many things i'll be talking about but anyway yes. there you go that's my two sets okay or bits, fair enough depending yes and if we're in old england where they used bits we could be that's a different podcast okay. that's when we're we gonna when, I, when we do our dickens wall-to-wall dickens complete earth <laughs> we do our dickens and talk about bits. yeah <laughs> we talk, <laughs> we're gonna do the dickens and talk about all our dangly old english bits oh dear oh, we I, gotta have mark savage here for that oh god one. please yes dangly more please old english more please bits. yes um so uh yes okay so for for those uh, oh wait oh we almost forgot nicely alluded and yet <laughs> not Kate Faker talk about your experience of reading the pale king I was stupefied with astonishment at the originality of the book and also laughed more. I don't usually laugh out loud at things that I'm reading. And the more tormented things got, the more funny they got. And I did find myself un- unable to stop myself from laughing out loud, mm. especially as like, yeah, as, as like people's personal torments became more tightly and tightly wound. And the story kept I guess belaboring, but belaboring with a kind of force that compressed the torment into, into with the kind of pressure that it had to get out that turned into a kind of hilarity and a certain kind of energy of its own. I, I, so it was extremely, I found it extremely fascinating and hilarious and then alternately weirdly disturbing and heartbreaking because I felt his own sort of self-loathing creeping in and explaining the loathsome characters that he develops and the loathsomeness that he brings out of any character he comes within contact of. And that ends up hanging over your experience and you just wonder if 
you, there's a certain sort of pathological aspect, perhaps. But it's still, the whole thing is a treasure. A weird, pathological, depressing, hilarious treasure, I think. Now that's a blur. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, now, uh, now for, um, you know, anyone who's read the book is no doubt aware of its history and the special mm-hmm. circumstances of its publication. And, uh, if so, they read the introduction <clears throat> to the book, you mean? Yes. Uh, which, okay, so there's, there's a <laughs> foreword to the book, um, composed by. Well, there uh, are two forewords, actually. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's, there's the hidden the middle, secret the forward. Forward. They're both good. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, oh, the editor's note. Okay. Yes. And yeah. the editor being Michael Peach, yeah. who, uh, is sort of, you know, become, um, a, a sort of custodian of the David Foster Wallace. Well, he edited Infinite Jest. Right. Which, which imagine my... that job. Yes. Oh my God. He said I had the pleasure of editing uh, Infinite Jest. Anyway, right. so go on. You were going to say. Well, and I wonder how much of the structure of the book is determined by his hand. Well, you know, that, that's it, the thing. I mean, I know so. So, um, after working on this book for years, releasing um, sort of random fragments of it in Harper's and the Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker and the usual suspects. Um, uh, and the usual suspects for David Foster Wallace. For David Foster Wallace. Well, our, yeah. our usual suspect uh-huh. being our stapled together Xerox zine that we put. Right, yeah, and we're happier that way. DIY, baby. <laughs> um, so, uh. No but, but, um, yes, yeah, so he, uh, and so, but he was, he was mostly, aside from these excerpts escaping, top secret about, um, about what this book was turning into and how it was, you know, consuming his life. And he, it was known to some of his intimates that he was taking extensive accounting courses mm-hmm. to, uh, to completely get into the headspace. I mean that, you know, which in and of itself is a, you know, testament to the commitment of this man. And there are passages in the book, probably it's most like the most ostensibly boring passages in the book. Um, on my third time passing through them, just so I could get on to the next damn chapter, yeah. um, and feel like I had digested what was being put before me, I, I was aware of the fact that this wasn't, he wasn't just cutting up jargon out of tax manuals and pasting them into the story. Yeah. This is someone who needed to make that jargon his second language mm-hmm. to talk about the world of the IRS authentically. And I felt like he was saying emotional, true things to me about these characters in this incredibly dry, brutal, mathematical language of, of the service. And, uh, and that's, that's astonishing. The service, like the Bureau. Yes. And I felt weirdly, weirdly equipped to read this book in a way. Like I felt like it would... In one of my incarnations, I worked as a bookkeeper, and I actually have ah. a life. Mm-hmm. I have an accounting license in the state of California, and I took all wow. of these classes. And so, Christy, great for me, I know. It's, I'm impressed with you. I do these things. Just Not an A's. accountant now. I'm just saying. Tax day is coming up, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You call me. Okay, I can be one of the two. That's, I owe you. That's going to be that's going that's an off, <clears throat> offline subject. Mm. But you know, and but the reason why I took those classes. And the reason why I wanted to work as a bookkeeper was because I found it fascinating, not dull and boring at all. And some of the interviews that we, we had people come in from the service, and they seemed like the most, like the, the, the people who audit for fraud, they were some of the most exciting people that I talked to in my college career because they're really, you know, I don't know. No, well, they I believe in what they're doing? Well, no, or, but because of, there's yeah. this whole investigatory yeah. sort of oh, like, sure. not that they're bought in, but they're yeah. cops. They're, yeah. they're detectives. Yeah. Right. So there are right. all of these like, tricks and tools that they use to detect I know fraud. This, and, right. I know this young lady who has, who has gone back to graduate school to become a forensic accountant. Right. Ah, yes. Like, and, yes. And she's this brilliant young lady who mm-hmm. worked at a bank, you know, is a baker. Ba- actually, that's her superpower or her God-given unbelievable talent. Right. She, mm-hmm. she bakes. That's what she does. That's mm-hmm. what she does. And she dreamed of opening a bakery and all mm-hmm. this, you know, majored in food science or whatever. And then she got a job at a bank and quickly rose you know, employee of the month, the first month, and then the top brass took note of her and she rose and now she's going back to school as a forensic accountant because she's got that mind, that curious yeah. detective mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway. And so I found it hard to believe it totally to, that, that just kind of backs up what I'm saying. Yeah. I found it hard to believe that working for the IRS would be that dull. Yeah. Right. 
Well, well, and 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 yes, but it was dull for him. Well, uh, well, right, dull, but, and yeah. he reflects himself. Well, but uh, but is he? I mean, because I I feel like you know, because he he's he's catching this experience from so many different angles. Yeah, yeah. so it's what also mean, not dull. Well, no. Yeah, it's exotic. Right, and not well, dull at all. When he's talking about like the cab drivers, well, in you know, having gone out, audited cab uh, drivers, I know that there's a certain percentage of them will just take the money and run. And right, right, and you the know, whole. The whole philosophical angle, like the of the religion of the of the Peoria district, uh-huh. you know that right. that within the IRS code you can find all of the qualities and the the inherent sort of responsibilities and the the culture around sit, being a citizen and civic duty and right. Well, and and him sort of catching. I mean, him deciding. He's not just writing a book about the IRS. He's writing a book about the IRS before it became it's in the 80s mm-hmm. and this is you know the reagan years are just coming on Reed is good yeah and it's going from a model of like moral rectitude like they think of themselves you know some of the old guard think of themselves as policemen or in some cases in this sort of religious sense and that i loved that they're you know anything that anyone devotes that much passionate, passionate, obsessive attention to this kind of like religion, like mm-hmm. bleeds through, mm-hmm. you know, their commitment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but shifting from that model, uh, uh, to this computerized corporate model where the IRS is a business and we need like minimum cost and maximum profit that he wants to catch it. As it, on the cusp, I mean, because he's studying in accounting classes now, he's clearly immersed in the corporate model sure. of what they're doing. But imagining that there's this more sort of poetic yesteryear of the IRS, and and in the midst of these beautiful, you know, and or infuriating or disgusting or fascinating stories that were being told about all these agents. I love like the little, just the little tossed off little references to cases that everyone in the service knows about. Yeah, you know right. that there's like this this mythology, the upheaval of, of you know eighty six and right. yeah. yeah, yes, yeah. and that the and the, in, the incident we open with this incident uh-huh. in which um, which I think the implication of is that it's partially being used as justification for the computerization mm-hmm. of the data processing uh-huh. that they that that is it's. Stysek, one of the oh Stysek, yes, who uh, who's an amazing character and who we see in his childhood oh as a, like a pathological suck ass. But in but is that the, oh is that's that, the, that the, kid the, the chapter Leonard, okay, so yeah, Stysek, Leonard, yeah, Leonard yeah. Stysek. So the yeah. opening with with uh, the tr- the transferee on the bus come on the plane and then on the bus is that uh, Stysek? No, that's Claude. Uh, uh, Sylvan Sweet. Sylvan Sweet. Yes. I, I think of it as Sylvan Shine. Fairweather. Like um, the name that he chose to give that Sylvan guy, Shine. Sylvan Shine, yes. is such a sunny name, right. and they're, and he's such the right. Yeah, um, it's it, that was hilarious. And what like the random name? fact psychic, Meryl Merle, the fact psychic, the data mystic, Meryl Merrill. Meryl Merrill. Yeah, Merrill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. it's just wordplay. That so, but then they're right. alluding in this opening sequence, which was one of the most painful and unfortunately early sequences in the mm. book. Yeah. He's on this plane ride oh and he's God. he's like obsessing mm-hmm. over everything happening around him and internally and over the over the uh, the exam that he's preparing for, but all peppered through are references to this like horrible incident in which the the district that he was working in got behind on processing and didn't want to tell anybody. Yeah. And like stuffed like records right. in air shafts and filing yeah. cabinets and right. under desks and, and and he would have nightmares of Because they couldn't was, destroy them. No one could no one could bring right. themselves to destroy the records. So they just put them away. But, but still but yeah. I, if we could just have another couple of weeks to figure this out, yeah. then... Right. <laughs> no, it's like the postman, the nightmare of the postman who doesn't deliver the mail and just keeps these bags and bags of unopened mail in his attic. Right. right. Yeah. Imagine. It's always a civil servant. Yeah. Jason, the postman. <laughs> oh, right. I try to be civil, but some people just, yeah, they bring out the devil in um, But, uh, yeah, so Sylvan Sweet, I, I, you know, and I feel like, I don't know, it's bold to say that he's a proxy for Wallace himself, because everybody in this is a little bit, one would assume. Uh-huh. You know, what shine. a writer does, right. Sylvan Shine. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea of the uh, the fact psychic, mm-hmm. the data mystic, it kind of, 
it's great that we're introduced to him first, um, you know, or, you know, after this lovely sort of pastoral idol where we are encouraged to read all these beautiful poetical facets of the landscape. Yeah. Read this. Read this. Read these. Yeah. It says these, all oh, this list, exhaustive list of details. Read these. The wormholes in the mud, you know. It, yeah. Yeah. And it, to begin a book about the IRS with this like lavish pastoral scene and then to jump into this claustrophobic, clammy airplane with this man who, um, who, you know, he like the 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 prose is peppered with his internal dialogue about the tests that he's studying for, and uh, the and claw of the lady sitting next. To yes, him. Yeah. yeah, and flashing back to the claws of his own Grand grandparents. Grandparents, everywhere. Yeah, right. and, and him picking out all these details of everyone's inner life. He knows who on the plane who would say they're in love. Who would, yeah, you know, who, cool. who's in love, who would say they're in love, right. who would not say that they're in love. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you feel like this is someone, Wallace himself, in choosing this theme, is, you know, is, is like focusing on something that is inherently bland. But again, that thing, if you just devote enough obsessive attention to anything, it's going to spit up, like, the universe. Mm-hmm. You know? That, Which I think is, is, the point it's um he's talking about big questions about and and his editor mentions it in the foreword that the theme is of boredom boredom but also of sadness Mm -hmm. and and the humanity of each of these characters Mm -hmm. and the things that they're obsessing about and the way they think about it it's universal yeah um and and the his uh his delving into that that kind of claustrophobic in the in the passage you were mentioning in the airplane. Mm, yeah. Um, oh, and you said unfortunately it was at the beginning of the book. Right. I was fascinated by that particular uh, passage. It was a sentence that went on for pages. Right. Yeah. Um, a Proustian, one might say. Yeah. yeah. And and I also happen to love Proust. So I I love Proust too, and I I love I feel like his adoption of the Proustian mode. And again, this is the first David Foster Wallace book that I've read. But really, yes. Um, and so, but. My experience of it, his adoption of the Proustian mode is almost a subversion of it because, yes, like Proust will have a 75-word sentence and take you from, you know, the Madeline to the blooming of flowers in his grandmother's garden, which calls to mind a similar flower in a stained glass window at some church where some guy he heard local gossip about was courting some woman. You know this, this, and the tapestries of the seven virtues. The yeah. yeah, and all these lovely things feeding and montaging and segueing through each other, and to apply the Proustian mode to taxes mm-hmm. is perverse. <laughs> you know, because however expensive. Yeah, I wonder Proust what inspired gets, him to do that. Yeah, you know, like I'm gonna write this. Maybe he. Maybe okay. In my reading of David Foster Wallace, it is impossible for me to separate the mental illness from the yeah. writing. Mm-hmm. And um, the first thing I ever read by him was called The Depressed Person. Mm-hmm. And it was a story in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And it was so good. It was fascinating. It was this from the, the depressed person, you know, talks to her best friend about, you know, the fact that she finds it hard to get up in the morning and make herself a cup of tea and she doesn't drink coffee because, you know, it goes on and on. Well, the, the long suffering friend, um, suffers from cancer and then her child dies and then she dies and, you know, but it's all about the depressed person's tiny little peculiarities uh-huh. in retrospect that story is full of his own self-loathing for his own depression. To me, that was so obvious in hindsight. Right, right, right. Um, since this came out after mm. his suicide, mm-hmm. it for me, that was in the forefront of everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I forgot why I started saying what I was saying. In relation to the Proustian, him employing the Proustian mode, yeah. or why he oh, wanted to write about taxes. I know yeah. what it was. Um, yeah, what drew him to this subject... Uh, the, um, I think the other thing he suffered from sadness Mm. and boredom being the two subjects of the Uh book was boredom. Mm -hmm. I have to believe that. Mm. And so maybe what he said to himself, what is the most boring thing I can think of? And this is pure conjecture, obviously. Uh 
Oh, it's taxes. Oh, right. my God. It's working at the IRS. Right. And he never had that experience with the forensic, you know, uh, right. uh, mm-hmm. accountants that you talked, spoke to. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he didn't have that conception. But... Well, but in in his it's a great, in his pursuit of this theme, I yeah, mean, those characters emerge. It's a great yeah. and it's a great ambition huh. to explore all human feelings, which is kind of what he always does. Right. Um, challenge yourself to do it through the lens of this most boring thing you can think of. Right. 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 Well, and, I, and I've in bits and pieces of things that I've heard him saying in other contexts, interviews I've listened to, and whatever. I mean, when he speaks of his depression. He doesn't speak of it as a sadness. Mm-mm. He, he, he uh, refers to the um, anhedonia, this uh, you know, this mental illness where everything is just drained of emotion. Right. The writer and, Thomas yeah. Ligotti also suffers <clears throat> from anhedonia and, and mm-hmm. reacts to it in well, a very different siren. way. Yeah, right. Um, an ability to conceive of feeling joy again. Right. Yeah, and uh, and so in in trying to you know, like, like understand that condition and that's, you know, and, and he critiques culture in that way. And that it's mm-hmm. that funny thing where someone this intelligent, if they have something to say about the civilization that we live in, you know, we want, we want to listen. We assume mm-hmm. that there's some kind of intrinsic weight mm-hmm. and, and there certainly is, but there's also the element where we're only ever talking about ourselves. We can't talk about culture. We can only talk about our right. experience of exactly. culture. And he's like in the infinite refractions. I mean, he rails against television, but I can see in the references, not just the overt references, but in little details, how what a staggering amount of television he's TV watched. Addict, which is yes. what we do. Don't we hate those things about ourselves we, yeah. that we hate? Oh. That was wrongly put. Well, and I think that's... <laughs> That's the struggle for me with this book is that it's clearly beautifully written and he without question has a mastery of language that is probably unparalleled in his generation. Mm-hmm. But the amount upon which his he, to me he appears to be projecting his own mm-hmm. sort of the sadness and the monotony onto these characters um, it felt in a way like like each the, the characters were being explored and evolved and developed and were certainly complex and complete, but they were all in a way the same character. Hmm. Right. Well, okay. In this, that's an interesting observation. Indeed, indeed. But I think it keeps <coughs> a lot of things we're noticing. I think are bringing us back to a central concern here: how finished is this book? Right. And this is something you mentioned earlier: um, um, the structure of the book. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something that the editor. Um, talks about in the introduction. He suggests that, that there were loose guidelines. Or, but that yeah. he chose, that right. he made the structure of the book. And that <clears throat> also what <clears throat> might be what made it easier for me to read. <laughs> uh, because someone without David Foster Wallace's complex, insane, in good ways, right. uh, also, um, right. brain, uh, you know, makes something that is digestible to little old me. Um and he, you know, he mentioned, he goes so far as to mention putting long, dense chapters interspersed with short, funny ones. Sure, right. sure. And who knows? Maybe that's exactly what David Foster Wallace would have done. Right. Well, yes, we don't know. And I, you know, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't attempted Infinite Jest, but that aspect made it difficult for me at times to commit to the reading Mm-hmm. Not knowing if well, well, because if if there's a complete work by an author who's alive and who has signed off on this, you know, like we, however he, he might was, critique himself after was, the fact, and he was um, mm. contentiously and and um, notoriously exacting about. Oh, absolutely, sort of yes, yeah. I mean, despite usually when we think of a super prose perfectionist, we think of this Raymond Carver Hemingway whittling down the sentences to their foot, but. This was a sprawling perfectionist who had like these revolving cathedrals of knowledge in his head. You call it tornadic. A tornadic, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. He yes. speaks a lot about tornadoes, and I guess as a child he would run into tornadoes. Like <gasps> there, he, lived, he grew up in tornado country, and uh, he and, certainly has a feel for uh, the Midwest. Well, he and sure that yeah. strikes yeah. me as someone who is completely filled with a joy, you know, who of chaos, right. of chaos, and, yeah. and, and, and excitement for life. So what the hell happened? Well, yeah, well, but, well, because <laughs> but well, but. But I think, you know, it, it's Not also... Not that that's understandable. I mean, I, I think as, as you mature, I mean, we, I, even I think when we're younger, we conceive of chaos as too much information, too many, 
you know, like events, like the dizzying excitement that we can't quite like sort through. I mean, speaking for myself and, you know, and, and perhaps for Wallace, as I mature, I mean, chaos just feels like, like it's too much information, but too much information that ultimately equals nothing. Everything cancels itself out. And it's like that, you know, like the malaise of your Facebook feed. I wonder why that, <laughs> I wonder why that is. It's, it, because I had the same experience. I mean, uh-huh. is that because as a kid you felt safety, a generalized, you know, because someone was right. taking care of you? Um, and so that spinning around and not knowing what's happening felt right. okay, whereas now we know no one's taking care of us. Right. And, and so the for me, groups of screaming children... I cannot stand it. Right. It, I, like you said, it's the uh-huh. it's the maelstrom that nullifies itself. Yeah, it just and I just gray mass and of, I just yeah. I cease to function. I cannot do it. Right, right. Well, I, arguably, it's that. I think also, perhaps. Um, I mean, we're haunted by our possibilities in our youth, huh. and as our options seem to shrivel ever so slightly or utterly, depending on the life. You know, like I am no longer aspiring to be a ballerina, for instance, uh, which I was at the age of five. Right, sure, and you know, but then speak for yourself. Ah, but then (laughs) anything that's ballerina friendly in that chaos is going to jump out at you. And there's all this stuff that has nothing to do with being about a ballerina. That's just an irritating distraction. But you know, I, I think when you know when when you feel like your options are fewer and you're not like quite ready to jump off every cliff, then all of a sudden it's like you're in a teeming like shopping mall universe of boundless possibilities that are all being offered to somebody else and what are you doing here oh you're listening to that that professor talk Uh about being grown up Uh and the and the heroism of 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 yes okay now that now that that professor in um in uh chris fogler's Mm -hmm. uh in his description of his epiphany wandering by accident after dissing his roommate's girlfriend for being so religious and describing her conversion to Jesus, him walking by accident mm-hmm. into an accounting class right. and receiving, I mean, even he's critical of the hyperbole of this, of this rhapsody mm-hmm. of accounting and the heroism of sitting at a desk and doing what you have to do. Even he's critical of the hyperbole, but I feel like Wallace is not. That seems to be this blistering, sincere, because he's talking about writing. He's talking yeah. about, like, what heroism is when when you grow up. And, you know, and, and that idea that, you know, all the, like, the, you know, we're, we're, like, searching the world, mapping the cosmos. There's still things to find out. But in terms of ordinary human life, the facts have been collated. You know, like, we've found all the facts. We've named and numbered all the monsters We've mapped the unknown territories, and now the heroism is sitting down and sorting through these facts and breaking them down and weighing them so that that people can continue to live with intensity. And it's almost the service that these people are called to is like whether you're an accountant or whether you're a writer who you have to commit to the fact that a big chunk of your life is going to be spent in a room you know, scribbling. At a desk. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's what I noticed. I mean, I can relate to the incredible tedium of executing something of any value whatsoever. And it is absolute torture and feels like you're definitely have, you've definitely made the wrong decision. In this rug thing you were doing the other day when we came over. It was was so beautiful. And you're like, I'll never do it again. No, because it was... Yes, Kate is an artist and yes. Yeah, I'm a visual artist and an avid reader. And I, and I'm I'm sure that a lot of, uh, a lot of the work that I do in its repetitive nature is even worse than writing. (laughs) At least one word after another changes. It's, (laughs) it's worse than taxes. (laughs) It's really tedious, like repetitively. There you have it. People don't be an artist. Okay. It can be a blurb for your show. But but the best things that I, the only, in fact, the only things that I've, that I've done that have ever been worth anything have been the worst, the ones that are the worst tedious, the worst. They've sucked up 
sickening amounts of time to the point where I've only finished them because I've invested so much so far. Not that I thought anything could possibly be worth it or that anything would be worth it or that I had a single working brain cell in my mind or was capable of making any sort of decision that resulted in anything useful. But through all of that, like just sucking it up and persevering through this stupid thing that takes for freaking ever, that's the only way anything worthwhile ever got done. And so I like, I felt this weird investigation into that dynamic to mm. be, and it was not an answered question. Right. You know, it's just, he's bringing up this question. Yeah. And when you mm. said the frontier of boredom, like, and he's, it, there's really not an answer like, yes, that's where you have to go. I mean, right. it, it brings up that, that it brings up, it, it posits that, right. but it does not, you know, confirm that, yeah, but, but boy, do have I experienced that. Yeah. Well, I have other things to say about this book that are completely different. So let's pursue this. Well, okay. Well, I, get, yes, just one, one point before I forget, yeah. uh, something that I felt in him describing the service and from all these different facets and especially when it gets kind of quasi mystical and we're <laughs> we're speaking of yes the like the um the home office is uh like the the street address is 666 uh-huh. no, some number or other so they call the home office the 666, the 666 it yeah. is the service is headquartered at the 666 it is run by the three-headed god there's all this like quasi masonic symbolism and and the fact that um, that there is a service, I mean, he's clearly drawing some kind of parallel between, you know, the solitary labors of the accountant and his experiences as a writer. But um, a writer, there, you know, there is not a vast national league of strange men and women in suits trying to figure this shit out with you. I mean, you there's all a, have social security numbers beginning with the same. Yes. Which is not true. Yes. No, but what a beautiful idea. Yes. In the book he suggests it's such a cult or insists. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, oh, that in his, in his forward. Right. Yes. Yes. That, uh, that, yeah, that you are assigned a new social security number as soon as you join the service and that the crest of the surface is uh, is uh, uh, the Greek hero Bellerophon <laughs> slaying the Chimera, and uh, with a Latin motto saying roughly doing the dumb thing I have to do to to uh, to, to save the people. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> yes. Now I feel like I'm being too hard on Mr. Foster Wallace. No, but say I think what you're thinking. Yeah. The way that he writes, I imagine it is a lot like processing. <laughs> Uh-huh. Because he's so methodical and technical, and so yeah. Yeah. you know, some of the chapters, like another um, another opening chapter to one of the characters who's only referred to as the girl throughout the entire chapter, mm-hmm. is like the trailer park girl. The trailer park girl right. is like the it is like girl. an encyclopedia of the horrors that can be bestowed upon every girl. It's right. like, and and the extent and the 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 building and the chronological nature of it, just that. And this, and then in the year this, this happened, and these things, and then the mother went into the hospital, and then the, the girl in the, you know, right. is, is right. raped, is living off of, you know, stolen, stolen food. food. It, it's just... And then she feeds ground glass to the guy who raped her. Right. And, and, and her tiny this, revenges, right, yeah. which right. are horrible. Well, awesome. Okay, horrible no, well, awesome. it's horrible. And the awesome part, okay, and, and I, I understand, like, the parallel, that it's just this catalog of abuse. Right. And, you know, item by item by item. <laughs> but, but, like, but, like, reading this at this particular point in the story, my joy at reading about all these human things, because it is the first time the narrative has veered away mm-hmm. from these sweaty men in suits mm-hmm. and is entering the fabric of a life that ostensibly does not have anything to do with the service. Is it, does she come before the, the obsessive boy? Yeah, right before. Okay. Yes, yeah. Oh, I loved um, this. That, that's right. dissect. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and then the sweaty boy and... Yes. Um, right. This yeah. maybe the funniest thing I've ever read. I oh, it's just, hilarious. And his journey throughout is great. Yes. I'm the sweaty boy. He sweats too much. And <laughs> But the sweating, it is just a way to get into the head of a character... Who has to like uh, who who learns to 
think about thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking. <laughs> oh my god, and that's what like when he's trying to study for the, the exam at the beginning. Right. S- trying to figure out the best way to study for the exam. Right. Mm-hmm. And and it's just like yeah. fucking open a book. Yeah. Excuse my language. But I can't no, no, no. say that. Yeah, no, we can, all we can of the characters in this all yeah. of the characters in this book and even Stysek, the, the the intolerable boy. Oh, who's Who mother? just wants to help everyone. Right, he's, he's, uh, let me help you with that. He's empathetic. He's generous. He's kind. <laughs> and yet, no one can stand him. The, even his own principal. mother sticks her yeah. head in and the, the oven. And in the oven, right. has an unfortunate well, accident. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> that was so funny. That was so right. funny. Yeah. And the principal, like, who just wants to drive a meat hook through his head. <laughs> and is, and is, is, is like disturbed and horrified by his own visions. Yes. He's a devout because man. He's a yeah. devout man. Yeah. And, and the teacher who, who like... And it has to undergo electroshock therapy or something. Yeah, yeah. and a marvelous character, and uh, but I, and and he and sort of like tailor made for the service, and and the way that they all are because yes. they all have, you know are in different ways are suited to their jobs. So, but, but, but the way he's he's diagnosed though, like like later on. Well, right. Yeah, but, yeah. But I mean, even this boy who's established as like is. Is is like joyful and, and approaches the world like it's a challenge, and he he knows how to meet the challenge. And when he doesn't, right. he knows what to do about it. Yeah, he is horrifically punished. Like, and everyone around <laughs> him cannot stand his very existence. But his nature is unflagging. He's right. always Mickey Rooney. When the cars try to, whatever you try say, to, try to hit him as, like, as he's doing his passing <laughs> arch, and he's like, "Oh, uh-huh. you're so funny!" Uh-huh. Whoa, you always got me. The boys who assault him in the bathroom, he tries to testify on their behalf as a character witness, if nothing else. You know, yes, and that's and again, I wanted more of him. I want more of all these characters. I feel like every character is like a novel unto themselves, and the ingeniousness of them all collating, right? All these fascinating damaged weird people coming together in this this church of of you know number crunching well and that's where i felt like the structural choices that were made by mr peach mr peach mr peach so you know because there's volumes of like mini chapters that are in quotations but they're unattributed and you have no idea who's right Who's giving this testimony and for what reason? Yeah, and some things fall into place what as you go. What do you masturbate go, but... to? Right, yeah, right? <laughs> yes. Really? Tits? Just free-floating, really? hovering tits. <laughs> you um, ass. Are they on some sort of background? <laughs> no, but, okay, but that was... I'm sorry, go ahead, Kim. Oh, no, it was just that the, the editor, Peach, didn't he say that the... Um, I mean, structurally, that there was... That there was all this material before this part that seemed really obviously to be the beginning of the right. story, but right. it was also had already been laid down very clearly, I think, right. by right. by David Foster Wallace that these long character studies that you have no idea where they're leading go before yeah, yeah. Right. Go, go before that part right. where. Yeah, so there were like notes for an intended structure, even though like, yeah, yeah. and it went, only would make it really only makes sense now within. I mean, and then these characters are reintroduced right. within the service like later on, and then within that, just choices about like exactly what goes yeah. where. Yeah, but it seemed like the superstructure. I mean, in you know, it seemed like and the that, superstructure was like sort of defined. Is that wrong? Kind, well, kind, but then that that whole the whole when the characters come together within the service, it seems very abrupt and and. Such a small part of well, the book. lopsided. I, yeah, I it is feel lopsided. like there's yeah. another, like there would have been another 400 yeah. pages. But yeah. is it, wasn't there like another 500 chapters? Isn't that what he was saying in in the in the introduction? He said actually that there were um, uh, it, that it it appeared to him, the editor, that there wasn't that much more to come. Uh-huh. That he had indicated in notes and that kind of thing that there was, right. but there were like multiple. He, versions of each chapter, right? Well, because that's how he did a significant right. amount of cutting. Right, right. Is that he he writes multiple versions. Yeah, and, and doesn't is not a plotter per se. There right. is not like a master outline that he's plugging stuff into or riffing on. That's right. There was nothing like right. That. Yeah, and uh, and then he's he's searching for this book as he goes, <gasps> which is interesting, but you know, a recipe for madness, I imagine. Um, but that's in the in the, like my ominously, ominously foreshadowing. Indeed, yes. Um, and I, I had problems at times because if like, if someone's, if the author has signed off on this book and he has put it before me as an artifact, if he freaks out and goes in a million directions at once, even if I'm not ultimately satisfied with the conclusion, I'm taking it as a given that all of this is on purpose. Right. 
And I would get into bits with the book where I, I would feel like, is this a joke being played on me? Mm. Not, you know, not that Wallace is cackling from beyond the grave, but that this just is not supposed to be in front of me in this form. And that this would have been heavily edited. And the, like the editor's note, Peach seems super sincere in his love for, for Wallace, his appreciation for his work. But I had mixed moral feelings throughout the book. But what do you do? I mean, he did say the stuff was really lightly edited. Right. um, Aside from cutting out repetitious And the stuff. implication, though, was that it would have been more heavily edited, and I felt or, that By way. David Foster Wallace. Right. Yes. Yeah. And there were times where I felt like in the middle of a chapter, uh, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just like, get, right. yeah. get what you're trying to yeah, say yeah, yeah. here. Right. And then kind of like, is this going any... Well, like, yeah. Although maybe, again, like you said, maybe that was the point. Maybe, maybe it was, and, maybe, and I just But we, we can't know, yeah. and we can't, we can't yeah. just take it as a given, because even if you're having, even if I'm reading Infinite Jest and I'm feeling that, and I'm irritated, and I get it, and you already said that. You no, know, it's on okay, purpose. But yes, this is part of the music. Okay, I just have yeah. to dance to this or not, but that's what this book is. But we don't know what this book right. wanted to be. Which always needs to be part of the discussion uh-huh. when you're discussing this book, because yeah. you're right. There's no way of knowing. Right, right. And so, um, yeah, so, you know. And 10 uh, years, right? Uh-huh. Ten yeah. years that he was wrestling with this. Yeah, that he's, right. his editor said he only heard him say, oh, I'm working on something wrong. I'm right. working on a big thing. Right. Right. That's it. Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say, Kate. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, if anybody thinks that I'm like cool or anything, I'm about to sacrifice this right now. Do it. Because <laughs> like, I have no, no shame in the circle. No, no coolness in the circle. Because, I think I because there might that. be, there might be readers out there uh-huh. who also don't know anything about David Foster Wallace. I know I did read some David Foster Wallace. I don't know anything about him as a person. No, I have no biographical knowledge about him. Um, and so really all that I knew was stories that he'd written before. And then the fact that he, um, killed himself before this book with this book the pale king was finished so i didn't there's this whole part where he tells his story of being in school and writing papers for other people and i thought that was true but you're this is fiction this is not a memoir like there's a tremendous conceit too in that meta right Right. yeah and he was saying that meta is no i wasn't sure like we're talking i'm like and even i told some people about the book and i realized that i wasn't sure if it was a memoir and that, that crazy story about him right. having to go work at the well, IRS because well, got it kicked out of school no was the sh- truth yeah. or not because right. I wasn't sure. And, and, and I mean, so, yeah. there, so, was, so there is so this amazing it, story it, in there. It's a legitimate question because right. any book should be able to stand on its own without any knowledge of the author. Uh-huh. It's like you want to be able to watch a movie not knowing anything about the movie star, which you can't do uh, in this day and age, unfortunately. Right. But it should. You should be able to. That should be. And so I think that's a, a really legitimate Well, question. and that's in the same way with, like, a, a film, you know, with a movie star. Okay, we can't pretend we've never seen that person before. So if they're smart, the filmmaker, you know, uses the ghosts that that person is going to trigger in our heads. Yeah, like casting Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. Right, precisely. Mm-hmm. Here's Mr. All-American, and he's just, oh, Mrs. Ah, I wish yeah. I had a million dollars. Yeah, and, and McMurray. Turning him into, yeah. a, into a, a, monster. a monster. Yeah, and that, and that, and that so stuff is fake, beautiful. So it's a it's the book, I mean, it's, it's a, because well, we're so, analyzing it a lot, but we're right. not describing so it in, very in much. So in The Pale King, uh, one of the conceits, one of the components is David Foster Wallace positing himself as a young... Uh, trainee kind of swept into the service and through a bizarre chain of events given a position much beyond his aptitudes and uh, what I what I noticed so I think I have read uh, biographical information that suggests that he did write uh, term papers for people okay in um, in college may have gotten into trouble did not get kicked out okay probably did not have a case so extreme that he was I think it was a great like, story auditing a class <laughs> like, in Russian and having to take down all the notes phonetically well and sets up this whole class I mean that that story sets up this whole class war aspect too to the 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 civics lesson of uh-huh. the the portions that are about citizenry right yeah right well and um well and then the circular logic of the the only thing false in this book is the disclaimer at the beginning of this book uh-huh 
which states that everything in this book is fiction. Uh-huh. Right. That only that part is fiction. Yeah. yeah. Right. And he's also and also says that all of that self-referential, <coughs> ironic meta stuff stopped being one bit interesting to him after uh-huh. the after he was, you know, once he was 30. Yeah. And yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was like, I don't know. And I, I had okay, a very but, busy but week, and I couldn't go back and I couldn't Google everything and see if, it was, <laughs> see if I was being fucked with or not. I didn't know. I didn't well, have time to somewhat, find out. But what's interesting, and to me, the saddest part of the book is the notes at the end, right? Where uh, where we get to see glimpses of what this book was supposed to be, and all the elements that have been laid out for us you know, are, are kind of, we get some idea of their place in the master structure that died with him. But one of the interesting things to me was that uh, David Wallace, the character, disappears a hundred pages in. Mm-hmm. He's vanished into the system. And um, so that he's, it's almost like... He's obliterating himself. He is, yeah. And so there's that, the tragic aspect, considering, you know, what happened, but also... Um, him being conscious in this great endeavor of doing this operatic payon to boredom and tedium that um, how can he invite someone into that, you know, with gusto? Because right. Infinite Jest, for all of its density, presents itself as this madcap, berserk critique of culture and seems to be unfolding in a million directions at once. And this is doing this in this very measured, bleached out way. But... Okay, oh, but here, oh, you you identify with the author. Oh, you're all excited about the new David Foster Wallace book. Well, I, hi, it's me. I'm David Wallace, and, you know, I'm, and maybe I'm the writer, maybe not, but I'm... And that comes halfway, you know, uh, uh, after several chapters in right. the book. Yeah. yeah. As it, and the way he writes it, it's as intended as it would have been before the book. Right. However, maybe this is what the author was referring to when he said something that appears to be a starting point. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, was clearly indicated that it needed to be after several chapters. Right. Yeah. Now, in stuff like that, I, you know, I felt like I needed a complete macro structure to appreciate that stuff. It that stuff annoyed me. Yeah. Because I, you know, like the the stuff where it just stopped fooling around and got really sincere. Why am I reading this? You know, and it knows that I'm asking that question, and it answers me. Hmm. Those parts of the book made it seem it seemed it made it. Like a, a beautiful book in its own right was sleeping in these in these fragments, and like it was a broke breakthrough for him, mm. and I was excited and sad for him because I, I felt like he really was, you know, striking at something that is unprecedented. You know? Well, and maybe that's where some of the despair comes from, is because he was certainly attempting something incredibly large and incredibly. That's the big story, you know. I mean, that's kind of the big story of human struggle where we live now. Right. It's the it's the great American novel. Right. Um, uh, E.B. White when mm. when he was writing, um, you know, he's an old timey guy. He's now dead. Um, he was right for the New Yorker. Wrote Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little and all these kids' books and mm-hmm. wonderful columns for Harper's and for the New Yorker, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, he always talked about um, his failure. Yeah. Uh, because he never wrote the great American novel, hmm. and he had he had very little to say about his children's books, mm-hmm. and um, the casuals, as he called them, for the magazines were just, you know, like what our blog posts would be today to him. Oh. And um, and what you're saying, Christy, I think is true. I think David Foster Wallace was attempting the great American novel, which is an impossibility. It, there's so many different. Well, he's attempting to address sort of like the the existential crisis of our time. Yeah, yeah. And in an attempting to address it, he seems to have succumbed to it. Yeah. Well, he's because he's, he's addressing it in an ethos of despair, right? Because he's speaking of the swan song, like who who like the IRS are the bad guys in every other story. But and it's like this is his life. It's as if he was in school and he was a young man, uh-huh. and. And somehow, whatever dream or thing may have been brewing in college turned into the equivalent uh-huh. of just filling in lines and columns and adding and adding things up endlessly, right. endlessly, right. endlessly, right. endlessly, right. endlessly. Yeah. The thing that I'm dancing around that I didn't want to say here okay. is that yes. this book is almost a commercial for suicide. 
<laughs> that that the, the characters themselves life is hopeless life is hopeless and, that, and there's no redemption in this mm-hmm. there's no joy and the few characters that have this glorious moment where they find meaning and they are testifying to one another it is on the cusp of that being ripped away from them mm-hmm. and codified and turned into tedium okay i um that is an excellent point mm-hmm. that i disagree with okay I feel like um, David Foster Wallace personally standing at this impasse, looking back on this time where even the most codified and mechanical line of work in the world still had some kind of moral rectitude in the mix. And speaking of it on the threshold of it becoming corporatized and in this universe where everything around us is a desperate, frantic, pathological flight from boredom. Mm-hmm. Where everything around us, I feel like... Yeah, that was one of the most, most important things in the whole book. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, in that, in, in like the darkened elevator, there's an elevator that stops between right. floors. Right. And in the shadows, all these IRS men right. are doing an autopsy of, <laughs> of American culture. <laughs> From the sixties to to the eighties and and like and convincingly prophetically prognosticating about where the culture is going from there. And uh and it's just it's it's uh it's a beautiful I mean there's so many pieces in this that seem like microcosms of the intentions of the whole book. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the like the kind of resonant tragedy of the thing, I feel like between the lines we're reading like Wallace is saying, you know, this thing that I keep prescribing as the way to wholeness or the way to an authentic life in this, in this world of white noise is to find the whitest patch, the dullest patch, you know, in that, in that static and to just move through it and feel the agony and the tedium and the pointlessness and push through. And there's something on the other side. And it is the condition of this book is someone admitting that he he could not push right. all the way through. He had a day where he could not push all the way through. Mm. And uh but that does not um diminish I th- I feel like the authenticity of him urging us to adopt that attitude through this book. And uh it's like when when Spalding Gray uh committed suicide and um I worked in a video store then and people were renting lots of Spalding Gray videos when that happened. And the guy who owned the video store, he was baffled by that. And he said, well, what doesn't that invalidate everything that he had to say? And, um, yeah, and I could see where he was coming from in a sense. Uh, I think he had, you know, wrestled. He was HIV positive and had kind of made a decision to live. And, you know, so it was a very, like, personal thing to him. Mm-hmm. But this is... Um, the service he's talking it's it's like it's like a, a military order it's a holy order it's this missionary thing that only in the context of this book is at the IRS yeah it could it's what it's whatever adult life is uh-huh. right and uh and uh, and he he felt he you know he fell in the service i feel like you're a fighter by nature mm-hmm. and uh and though you know um Wallace's struggle with his depression can be perceived as a kind of battle. He's a mercury man. He's a shocker and he's a, driver. And he's, he's, a, he's a giver-upper. Yeah. Ultimately. Right. Yeah. And, and, that, and sacrifice. That, that, as yeah. was Spalding Gray, a giver-upper. Right. Yeah. Struggle, 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 a giver-upper. Yeah. In the end. Well, yeah. And that, that, that that's part of his art in a way. Like yeah. to finally to, conf- it is more beautiful and, and uh, germane to his character and his gift to confess voluminously about his failure mm-hmm. than to put that much energy into succeeding. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because, I'm... you know, like stories about people winning are fucking boring. You know, they're fun. It's fun to be the winner. But stories about here's all the times when I won and was awesome. I feel like uh, I feel like what we were being set up for with these characters, even though they might be sort of evading the pain in their own lives by throwing themselves into into the service. Um, yeah, I, I like to think it felt like it was, I mean, the, that thing of all of them to varying degrees intuiting that peace that can come from just shutting up and crunching the numbers. Mm. 
and uh, and and perhaps presenting like, um, yeah, like it's one thing for a character to stand up and present a new paradigm of heroism, and that's a beautiful scene. But to see that illustrated in these uh, in these lives um, would have been nice. Well, that and that's something that. Um... I think was really intentional on his part. Uh-huh. You, you know, you say you can't read this novel without having in your mind, is this what was intended or not? Uh-huh. Well, there, you know, apparently with through his notes and stuff, he intended that there was always this, these like big crises looming, right. but they never happened. Yeah. Like the, uh, the play that the one yes. character, it, it, I sit there and I write the play and the play starts when the audience leaves, but I can't remember what the play is going to... I can't well, think of yeah, what the action like going to be. Yeah, like the character sits and, there and at his that, desk. I was going to have a clock in it at first, but then I took the clock out. <laughs> right. <We're, Yeah>. <laughs> and, then, and, and that's what the book's like. Yes, yes. Um, we're, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. that the thing never happens. Or that it happens as soon as everyone leaves. Right. Or you know? right before you got there. Right. Like, yeah, perhaps um, Wallace had to commit suicide to finish this book. And um, in some platonic realm... Um, in the back corridors of some lonely REC center somewhere on the night side of Peoria. Uh, he toils still into the night writing um, a book that will never, gloriously never, ever be finished. Thank you, David Foster Wallace. Um, do Excuse we have any... Me. That was beautifully put. <laughs> yeah. do, we have, uh, do we have any closing thoughts? What would you say to someone... Who said, oh, you read The Pale King. What's, uh, should I read it? What would you say, King? Well, one thing I was thinking is that if, um, in such a gigantic and, um, gigantic, diverse, um, world as we're, as we live in, I don't know that it's possible for anybody to, anybody to write the great American novel, Hmm. but he wrote, a great American novel, and in its in its unanswered questions and unfinished form, I think it reflects reality and the struggles of life today a lot better than than any I, more than anything I've probably ever read. Wow, there's an endorsement. Indeed, indeed. Well done. Um, as a writer, um, I have to agree with Kate in that. Um, the th- larger themes of boredom and the larger challenges presented by reading through and through and through that, those descriptions, um, can be trying. However, so many times that I'm, as I'm reading this book, I am inspired to write, and I did. And because of the detail with which he describes, uh, like on the plane, sitting there in the claw and going back, and it, it, it inspired me to look closely at what was around me. And try and describe it, which mm-hmm. to me is some of the most compelling writing anyone ever does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. anyway, two bits. Oh. I would say read it. Don't read it in four days. <laughs> <laughs> read it. Yeah, don't. Read it in <laughs> snippets, maybe, and then put it down, and then like go for a bike ride, and go to a karaoke bar, like do something, and then come back to it, because it's beautiful, and it's definitely well-crafted. And the the just from a, um, as an appreciator of language, um, I loved pieces of it. But I would say, do not immerse yourself in this book. Uh-huh, right. Don't do it. Too depressing. It's too mm. depressing. Well, and as someone who is a stranger to Wallace, my feeling is, I, I mean, I um, I'm not going to read any more David Foster Wallace for a good long while. Just I have to those particular receptors. I need to let them chill. <laughs> Um, but reading it, I wish that, uh, that I had read more of his shorter works and that I had come to this. I would advise this make, this convinces me that consider the lobster, the girl with curious hair, uh, brief interviews with hideous men. These are no doubt fascinating books that should be sought out and read. And when you've fallen in love with him, then, um, the, uh, the startling ambition of this, uh, of this strange, unfinished work um, will uh, tug on your heartstrings and uh, and just didn't have this extra resonance and uh, and I'm I, uh, I have mixed feelings about uh, the decision to put this uh, before the world um, but on a personal level I am uh, and those are like moral writerly feelings but as a person mm-hmm. I'm glad that I read this and that my mind was touched by that strange broken man um, 
Now, if you're digging this on iTunes, uh, what you want to do, okay, or whatever vector you're checking out Book Circle Online through, you want to get on the iTunes and you want to you want to dig on it and you want to leave comments. You want to share this with all your friends. And you want to leave comments and start a conversation with us. It's like you're hypnotizing them. You want to do this. You want to you do this. Want you want to, to do download this. Book Circle online on iTunes, iTunes, iTunes. iTunes. Mr. Uh, Squamata. Yes. Do you, do you check for those comments on iTunes? Uh, every single day. Will you respond to anybody who, like... I absolutely will. I want to talk to people. I want to communicate. I want to meld minds. I want the circle to get wider and wider and wider. And deeper. And deeper. We are here to keep reading alive. We are here to keep it circular, okay, and bookish. Bookish. That's what we do. Yes. We are reporting from the library of Maria Menounos and uh, through the auspices and good graces of the AfterBuzz TV Corporation. We are thrilled to be here and putting you in contact with the books that you need to grow and evolve and blossom as a person. And uh, why don't you uh, you keep tu- tuning in? And uh, thank you so much. This has been the uh, Pale King Edition. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.